0: In the past few days, life has changed in America and around the world more than any of us likely could ever imagine. Entire cities are on lockdown, restaurants and bars and schools are closed in an all-out effort to combat the coronavirus. It's scary, it's confusing, and it's been made worse by an incompetent response at the presidential level, and that can make it hard to get good information. So today... In this special episode, we have Dr. Peter Hotez. He is an esteemed vaccine scientist, Dean of the Baylor College School of Tropical Medicine, and he joined us by phone to share clear, accurate, and helpful information about the situation. Please listen, please stay safe, and please stay home
1: looks like by april
2: you know in theory when it gets a little warmer it miraculously goes away we only have 11 cases and they're all getting
0: better we're totally prepared we have the best people in the world you can't be a
2: politician and shake hands people come out when i leave i'll be shaking hands with people they want to shake your hand they want to say hello they want to hug you they want to kiss you i don't one of these doctors said how do you know so much about this maybe i have a natural ability maybe i should have done that instead of running out of nowhere and uh, actually came out of China which is to keep new cases from entering our shores we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days to unleash the full power of the federal government at this effort today I am officially
0: declaring a national emergency let the federal government say
1: these are the guidelines here are the guidelines on schools here are the guidelines on businesses here are the guidelines on travel. Rather than having a scramble of uh, every local government, state government, trying to figure it out on its own, it
2: makes no sense. The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing.
1: And A that, failing, it, yes. It,
2: it is a failing. I mean, let's admit it. I'm Peter Hotez, and I believe that all of the world's population, including the world's poorest people, deserve the right to access to essential medicines, vaccines and innovation. Sorry, not sorry.
0: First, just from a medical perspective, what makes this virus so different than some of the other viruses that circulate? Why is it so deadly? Well,
2: this is one of the interesting things about this coronavirus. It's not the most lethal virus we've ever seen by a long shot, right? It's nothing like Ebola that kills half of untreated people, nor is it like measles in terms of transmissibility that is the most transmissible we know, but it's high enough in both categories to give it this unique spin that we haven't seen from a lot of other viruses. Let me explain that a little bit. So the virus Itself overall is between five and 20 times more lethal than seasonal influenza, which itself is a bad actor. And it's quite transmissible, about two or three times more transmissible than flu. So you've got something that's not quite as serious as the 1918 flu pandemic, but it's starting to approach that. But it only happens for certain age categories. So this is really interesting. It's highly contagious and but there's a lot of people walking around with it that are not too sick to stay at home so they could spread it in the community. Let me contrast that with something else. So if you look at the original SARS virus, so this new virus, we were calling it SARS-2, the original one, which came out in 2003, was you know five or six times more deadly and, and a more serious illness for everybody. So what happened was, if you had that original SARS-1 virus in 2003, It's not like you were walking around, going to Target, going to the shopping mall. You were sick and you were in bed or you were in the hospital. And that kind of kept you out of the community pretty quickly. This one is different unless you're in one of those at-risk groups. And I'll tell you which those at-risk groups are. You're walking around spreading the virus pretty widely. And that's why this thing has taken off so much in central China and in northern Italy. And then in the U.S. it's doing this as well. But if you're unlucky enough to belong to one of the three or four major at-risk groups, that's when you get very sick and have to go to the hospital. So for those combination of reasons, it makes it a very serious national epidemic.
0: And also, I mean, you know, I don't want to politicize this, but the president is giving guidelines and recommendations that I don't know, vary from interview to interview, right? I mean, it's like every single time we hear him speak, he's talking about something else, some other guideline that contradicts the guideline before. So how can individuals be expected to know the right thing to do when they're getting totally conflicting information from our leadership?
2: What needed to be done, what still needs to be done is, and I've said this in public a few times, is what you need to do In this kind of situation is you have a very honest discussion with the American people where you say, you know, you don't say this is just a flu or a cold or this is contained. What you do is say, look, this is a serious pathogen. These are the three or four things I'm most worried about. You talk about older Americans, especially those with underlying disabilities, and you explain why. You talk about healthcare providers. Now we have two emergency room physicians in critical care this weekend, according to the New York Times. And so these are our two or three big populations that we're worried about. And here's what we're going to do about. And here's why we're going to do what we're doing. And historically, the American people have responded to that very well. Uh, It's just when you muddle the message and say, you know, in, in an effort to reassure that language was used, which tried to oversimplify and minimize it and actually wound up making things much worse. I said, you know, if you had actually gone through the three or four things that you're worried about, and here's what we're doing about it. I think that in itself would have been stabilizing. And we might not have seen this volatility, for instance, in the stock markets and everything else.
0: Right. Well, one of the areas that we're getting conflicting information from is about whether children are at risk. So I just want to discuss that a little bit. You know, on the one hand, people are hearing that kids are not affected by the virus. On the other hand, they're hearing that underlying conditions are a risk factor. So you're the perfect person to ask this to because you're also a pediatrician and a vaccine scientist. What is your best advice for kids with underlying medical conditions, or just what is your advice for moms with kids that don't have underlying medical conditions?
2: So like a lot of questions that people have about this virus, I always start out with a qualification, which is that, first of all, it's a new virus. We're still on a steep learning curve, and there's more we don't know than we do know. The evidence to date says the following, that for reasons that we don't understand, it looks like children and adolescents are becoming infected with the virus. How much so we'll talk about in a minute. But for some reason that we don't understand, on average, kids and adolescents are not getting nearly as sick as older individuals. And there's a lot of number of theories, including the fact that there's other circulating coronaviruses among kids, immunizing them. We really don't know what the base of that is. But the point is kids and adolescents are acquiring the infection, but we don't think they're getting nearly as sick. And now there's always the outlier. So every now and then you will have an 18, 19 year old that gets very sick on a respirator with this virus. But overall, that's pretty rare. Then the next question comes, okay, well, if they're getting infected with this virus, how much are they responsible for transmission in the community? And that the scientific community seems a bit divided. So for Mm -hmm. instance, the Centers for Disease Control came out with guidance saying that their models indicate that children are actually not responsible for much community transmission and therefore closing schools may not have a big difference one way or the other in terms of affecting community spread. But others are not so sure. So the problem gets into when you have a new virus and you worry about not having enough margin for error, especially when you're not testing in the community, you tend to veer towards more extreme measures than you might ordinarily do. So this gets to the point that had we been doing testing like has been done in Korea, that potentially we would have our arms around this a little better. But that's where we stand right now.
0: I still can't find a test in California.
2: Yeah. I mean, testing is still, you know, we're not nearly where we need to be. I think we're slowly getting there. But the problem is this, you know, we've delayed community testing so much that now, unfortunately, we have to recognize that we probably have not contained the virus in many parts of the country, although we don't know for sure. And so that's why we're having these very dire discussions this week from governors, including what we heard from Governor Cuomo this week, that we have to get ready for the next phase. And that next phase talks about having large numbers of individuals, especially the at risk categories, in the hospital or in the intensive care unit. And to a point where some of the models say so many will be infected that we won't have enough beds or respirators. And unfortunately, we don't really know the true extent of this epidemic in terms of the percentage of the population that's going to be infected.
0: Do we know for adults which pre-existing conditions are the most dangerous as a risk factor?
2: What we know is what we're extrapolating from what we know about the epidemic in China and maybe Italy and Korea with the likelihood that it applies to the U.S. So diabetes is a big one. Hypertension is another big one. Heart disease is a problem. In fact, one of the things we're learning about the virus when it gets people very sick, a lot of people know about the lung injury, what fewer people Realize there's a lot of heart injury also. So, this is causing acute heart injury. We don't know if that's because people are having a heart attack when they're getting sick or whether it's because the virus is invading the heart tissue and causing inflammation of the heart. And again, we don't really know why diabetes is a risk factor or hypertension. There's one paper that came out in the last few days that has the suggestion that it may not be the diabetes and the hypertension itself, but the medical treatments used for this actually interfere with the enzymatic activity of the receptor and it tends to cause the body to produce more of the receptor for the virus. And so that's kind of a controversial hypothesis, but one I think worth investigating. And then the question is going to be, well, should we advise people with diabetes or hypertension to go off certain medicines? And I don't know that we have enough data to support that, but you might see that discussion come up in the following weeks.
0: When people pass away from this coronavirus, are they all dying of the same thing, meaning like this suffocation feeling that has been described?
2: It seems to be lung injury. That's a prominent mechanism. Uh, You get pretty uh, overwhelming virus infection in the lungs, and then it's the host's inflammatory response that really adds to lung damage that's responsible to the point where Somebody's on a ventilator, you can't adequately oxygenate them. That's clearly one mechanism. But as I've mentioned, you also have this finding that there's a lot of heart injury that goes on as well. So it's really damage to the heart and lungs is the overriding mechanisms.
0: So I posted on my Twitter account that I was going to be talking to you, and some of my followers would like the following questions answered. Would you mind taking some of their questions?
2: Yeah, sure. Happy to.
0: Josh asks, I'd like to know more about the use of antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients as therapeutic. I've read about this, but is it effective and can it scale?
2: I don't go on TV a lot. I Unfortunately, I tend to go on TV a lot when there's bad news, when there's a catastrophic epidemic. And if you look at my media hits, it looks like an EKG with the, the peaks being Ebola and, and Zika and now this or H1N1. One of the things that I try to do is take advantage of that opportunity beyond the media to promote certain things that I think needs to be done that's not being done. And one of them is protecting our healthcare providers. I don't think there's been enough attention to this. And there's a group at Johns Hopkins led by a friend and colleague of mine named Arturo Costa Duval, who's been pushing for what's really a throwback. It was done during the 1918 flu pandemic, where you took someone who recovered from the virus knowing they had antibodies, uh, harvested their blood, gave them back their red blood cells, but collected their serum, which you can then use to isolate the antibody, and you use the antibody in one of several ways. One, if you give a large enough dose, you might be able to treat somebody who's acutely ill with the virus. That's one use. Another is you can give it in smaller doses to protect healthcare workers or first responders. Hmm. And, and, you know, given the fact that this is a new virus pathogen, it's going to take time to develop new approaches and therapies where, for instance, we've developed a vaccine that we're trying to get into clinical trials. But even assuming we can get the funds to move it into clinical trials, it's still going to be at least a year away. So I think this antibody treatment therapy offers a lot of promise and could be something that we could do right now. It's also not too expensive. It does require mobilizing blood banks, maybe at academic health centers, but it's very doable and the technology is relatively straightforward. But when I talked to Arturo, my colleague, he was getting very frustrated that we're not able to engage the federal government, gauge a federal response. We need to be able to send serum across state lines. We need to be able to get some funds into the blood banks to make this happen. And This is an example of how I've used my voice on cable news to raise this, and it's starting to get some attention now. So I'm hoping that we'll make progress on two fronts. One is advancing our vaccine uh, and getting that into clinical trials soon, but in the meantime, Let's move forward on this uh, antibody therapy.
0: Jesse wants to know, I have the onset of COPD. What is my increased risk? Doctors say not to worry, but with anxiety, I do. Well, I'm not
2: so sure I would say not to worry. I haven't seen the data on COPD, but intuitively having a serious respiratory virus like this SARS-2 coronavirus, with underlying COPD, I would say you should consider yourself... Potentially at risk for worsening disease. And, you know, someone like that probably has to take greater precautions for social distancing than the average person.
0: And in that same vein, Jackie is asking, I had pneumonia nine years ago. What, if any, impact does that have if I happen to be exposed? I'm sorry,
2: so you had pneumonia when?
0: Nine years ago?
2: Uh-huh. Well, I what? would say probably,
0: you know, how old is, the, how old is Jackie? I don't have that information.
2: Well, assuming it's a middle-aged, let's say it's a 40-year-old adult, pneumonia's do happen. Usually the lungs heal pretty well. So I would think probably not at that much greater risk. But if it's, again, if it's an individual in those risk groups, meaning healthcare provider, older individual, then you again want to be very careful. By the way, you might be asking, well, why am I talking about healthcare providers as an at-risk group. And that's an interesting story as well, because the Chinese told us and have data to support that when they saw a lot of healthcare workers get sick in Wuhan hospitals because they're exposed to the virus and they're not protected, at least often initially when they're seeing patients, they're getting, have a greater severity of illness than you might expect on the basis of their age. And again, we don't know why, but that's Mm. an interesting Mm. observation. So the Big at risk groups that I'm looking at are those over the age of 70, underlying debilitating conditions or chronic conditions, as we're talking about. But I put healthcare workers in that at risk group. And I think it's all hands on deck to to protect those individuals.
0: There just seems like there's so much that we don't know. This is the problem. You know, in fairness
2: to any administration, one of the things I like to say is this is always among the greatest tests for our nation is combating a pandemic threat from a new pathogen. And trying to learn about the pathogen is the same time you're trying to fight it. You know, we did this with Zika, trying to figure out why pregnant women were at risk, how to protect them with Ebola when it was happening in Dallas or with H1N1. This is very tough and it's interdisciplinary. And that's why when I saw this happening, I thought it was really important to point somebody at the top to manage this who could span across the different agencies, because it turns out it becomes much more than a health problem. It becomes an economic problem. It becomes a security problem. And it's very
0: complicated. An anonymous follower writes, I'd like to know his opinion on something that I read. Can we expect a second wave of the virus in October, November 2020?
2: The answer is yes, but again, we don't know. So, you know, certain viruses have seasonality. Flu, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere peaks in the winter, and it's the opposite in the Southern Hemisphere. There are certain coronaviruses that peak in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Will this be one of them? Well, we haven't been through a whole year of the virus yet, so we have no way to predict. So we're hearing all sorts of possibilities. One It'll totally disappear with the warmer weather. A more realistic one probably is it may go down with the warmer weather and then come back again in the fall or the following year. And that's one of the reasons why we're moving forward on a vaccine, even if we won't necessarily have it in time for this particular epidemic. If it starts to come back, then we'll have it ready. Or the possibility is that it'll just become a regular occurrence uh, in this country, or it'll be like flu peaking in the northern hemisphere in the winter and and in the, the summer months in, in the southern hemisphere. But again, since we've only known about this virus for a few weeks, we haven't been a full, through a full season, it's, it's really tough to predict that one.
0: Uh, Kat wants to know what your thoughts are on stories of re- reinfection. I
2: think reinfection may occur, but I think it's probably less common than what I've often seen with respiratory viruses, which is that you're sick, you start feeling better, and then you get sick again. And that's not necessarily from reinfection. That's this waxing and waning course that we sometimes see with respiratory viruses.
0: And then Courtney Asks, my daughter was born with a congenital heart defect. She's 12 years old. I know children aren't really having issues with COVID-19, but do we know if any of those children have underlying health conditions or were they healthy children to begin with?
2: Yeah, I'm I, getting those questions a lot. I don't see a lot of data about that. Intuitively, I would think fragile kids, those with you know underlying disabilities or heart disease could be at greater risk. I just haven't seen much data to support that. But, uh, you know, the U.S. population is quite different from the Chinese population, that we have more kids who survive their disabilities, perhaps, so Hmm. maybe this would be a bigger issue. So My recommendation would be if you have a child that you would label as, quote, fragile because of underlying conditions, better play it safe and think of that individual like you would an older individual at risk.
0: Can you give us an update on the vaccination and where we are with that?
2: Yeah, I think you're going to see now several vaccines now moving into clinical trials. Ours is one of them, and I hope that moves forward in the coming weeks. But there are others as well. That's the good news. The not-so-good news takes time to test a vaccine, not only to see that it works and protects against the virus, but also to evaluate its safety, you know, despite What the anti vaccine lobby likes you to believe vaccines are probably the most single tested pharmaceutical we have for safety. But that means you can only accelerate timelines so far. So I think, you know, maybe a year, maybe even two years from now, uh, we could have a vaccine. But that is the reality. And that's why I'm pushing for this antibody therapy, because I think it's something that America can, Americans can do now.
0: Is there any way that people listening at home can support you in that effort?
2: Yeah, sure. That would be great to have them send me an email. It's pretty easy to get my email. It's just HOTEZ, H-O-T-E-Z, at BCM, stands for Baylor College of Medicine, dot edu. And I'll set you up with a couple of people that are helping us here at Baylor College of Medicine. And in Texas Children's Hospital. So sure, that would help.
0: So on Monday, Trump said that he thinks that this will be an issue well into July or August. Do you agree with that? Not that it necessarily will go away.
2: He may be right. But, you know, and I don't know if he means that because he thinks it'll be seasonal or because we'll have figured out how to control the virus or some combination of the two. But it's, as I always say, it's a brand new virus agent and we're still on a steep learning curve. I personally don't think it's very helpful to make statements that are not backed by data because their are statements not backed by data. And then when you actually need to convey real information to the American people, it becomes that much harder.
0: And I mean, when we come out of this social isolation, because we will at some point, the virus will still be out there, correct?
2: Well, you know, for instance, the original SARS, SARS SARS-1 has not, right? We've not, it's not come back. It's not been around. And we've also seen that with Zika. Zika really disappeared very abruptly. And for reasons that we don't understand, some people say it's due to herd immunity, others say maybe climatological factors. So when I saw what happened with zika, I was actually completely I mean I've been wrong in the past but never that completely wrong. I have to tell you I was totally astonished the way zika just disappeared like it never existed. That's a real surprise for me. So I would say anything is possible at this point, but the way we have to proceed as a nation is assuming worst case scenarios, uh, so that if we have to back off interventions, that's great. And that's my hope as well, that I can go back to going out with Anne and having hot sake and my gyoza and sushi. I'll be looking forward to that. But for now, it's we've got to hunker down.
0: Is there something that you have not been asked when ask questions about this virus that you have information that you'd like to get out there?
2: The antibody therapy is, you know, see if we can get a federal response out of that. That's, I think, going to be really important. And as we move into this next phase of the epidemic, I think our weakest link right now, you know, a few weeks ago was not having the testing and that's getting a little better. It's still a weak link. But I think the weakest link right now for us our healthcare providers and first responders, because if they start to go down, this will really destabilize things and it could be very damaging to the country. And so protecting those groups, I think, has to be our number one priority.
0: And how long do we have to put that into effect before it? it well, according to Governor late.
2: Cuomo in New York, you know, he's saying he's, we've got to put it in place pretty soon. Other parts of the country may not have as much transmission. Why Westchester got hit so hard and New York got hit so hard, we we can't really say. The other thing I'm worried about is as testing ramps up, we'll start to see areas of significant community spread that we didn't know about before. So the sooner we can get our testing in place, the better.
0: And finally... What is the most important advice you could give anyone listening right now on how to protect themselves and their family and their communities against the virus?
2: I would say that you know right now we we have to recognize that this is an imminent threat, and even though it's upsetting to have something so disruptive in our lives and at so many different levels at work at school and aspirational dreams you know and it's even the the stuff that It's not catastrophic. It's just so upsetting, you know, hearing about somebody's art school scholarship, you know, evaporating or not being able to graduate. Just there's just a lot of sadness right now in the country. So I think it's really important to, one, take care of your mental health. And there are things you can do. Walk outside, you know, keep your social distance, but be outside. Try to do things that are calming for you and just recognize that everyone is going through a very difficult time right now.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Peter Hotez, for all of your work throughout the years, but especially for being a leader for us to look to during these difficult times. Thank you so much for joining us on Sorry, Not Sorry. Together, we can come through this. Please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and take heed of the warnings the medical professionals are giving. I'm with you all. I leave you now with a special reading from Camille Lofton. It's called Washing Your Hands by Dorian Midnight.
1: We are humans relearning to wash our hands. Washing our hands is an act of love. Washing our hands is an act of care. Washing our hands is an act that puts our hyper vigilant body at ease. Washing our hands helps us return to ourselves by washing away what does not serve. Wash your hands. Like you are washing the only teacup left that your great grandmother carried across the ocean. Like you are washing the hair of a beloved who was dying. Like you are washing the feet of Grace Lee Boggs, Beyonce, Jesus, your auntie, Audre Lord, Mary Oliver. You get the picture. Like this water is poured from a jug your best friend had to carry three miles from the spring. They had to climb a mountain to reach. Like water is a precious resource made from time and miracle. Wash your hands and cough into your elbow, they say. Rest more, stay home, drink some soup, they say. To which I would add, burn some plants your ancestors burned when there was fear in the air. Boil some aromatic leaves in a pot on the stove until your windows steam up. Open your windows. Eat a piece of garlic every day, tie a clove around your neck, breathe. My friends, it is always true, these things... It has already been time. It is always true that we should move with care and intention, asking, do you want to bump elbows instead with everyone we meet? It is always true that there are people living with only one lung, with immune systems that don't work so well or perhaps work too hard fighting against themselves. It is always true that people are hoarding the things that the most vulnerable need. It is already time that we might want to fly on airplanes less and not go to work when we are sick. It is already time that we might want to know who in our neighborhood has cancer, who has a new baby, who is old with children in another state, who has extra water, who has a root cellar, who is a nurse, who has a garden full of thyme and nettles. It is already time that the temporarily non-disabled people think about those living with chronic illness and disabled folks. That young people think about old people. It is already time we stop using synthetic fragrances to not smell like bodies, to pretend like we're not all dying. It is already time to remember that those scents make us sick. It is already time to not take it personally when someone doesn't want to hug you. It is already time to slow down and feel how scared we are. We are already afraid. We are already living in the time of fires. So when fear arises, and it will, let it wash over your whole body instead of staying curled up tight in your shoulders. And if your heart tightens, contract and expand. Science says compassion strengthens the immune system. We already know this, but capitalism gives us amnesia and tricks us into thinking it is the only thing that can protect us. But it is the way we hold the thing, the way we do the thing. Those of us who have forgotten amuletic traditions, we turn to hoarding hand sanitizer and masks. We find someone to blame. We think that will help. Want to blame something? Blame capitalism. Blame patriarchy. Blame white supremacy. It is already time to hang garlic on our doors, to dip our handkerchiefs in thyme tea, to rub salt on our feet, to pray the rosary, kiss the mezuzah, cleanse with an egg. And in the middle of the night, when you wake up with terror in your belly, it is time to think about stardust and geological time, the redwood, and dance parties and mushrooms remediating toxic soil it is time to care for one another to pray over water to wash away fear every time we wash our hands Sorry Not
0: Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano, that's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson, editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari, that's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.